Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, June 6th, a first-time slam finalist now guaranteed from the bottom half of the 2021 French Open women's singles draw as both Serena Williams and Vika Azarenka knocked out on the day, of course, for Serena, was a straight-set loss to 21-seed Elena Rabakina. That will be one of our headlines of today's show. Of course, we also want to talk about some of the battles we saw unfold on the men's side. Davidovich Fokina advancing to his first Grand Slam quarterfinal with a win over Del Bonis. We had Paula Bedos to Jaber going three sets with Vandrusova, as mentioned, Pavlchenkova, a three-set win over Vika, and then the next-gen ATPers seemingly finding their form at this French Open, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Virov into the quarterfinals. Want to talk about how all of that happened on today's show. Of course, the reason we are able to do that day in, day out here on the Mini Break Podcast is because of all of the support we get from you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from from our friends at Tennis Point. Of course, normally, you're used to hearing me talk about Midwest Sports. Well, Midwest Sports, now Tennis Point. And no, you can still find all of the great equipment, all of the best prices, and the best staff in the business by turning to our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com. That's the symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders, exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, MidwestSports.com. See, I'm still brilliant on saying it. We'll actually send you to Tennis-Point.com. But again, it's Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15 with that in mind. Have to start with Rabakina against Serena. And let's start with the glass half full side. Elena Rabakina, who we've talked about before on this podcast, on our Many Cracked Rackets podcasts, she does have Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club potential. Her top gear, as impressive as any player's top gear, at least in terms of the serving side of the equation, Honestly, in the next gen, in the you know women's game right now, she does flirt with that Osaka, Serena, Petra Kvitova effectiveness in first serve percentage. You look for her since the start of the 2020 season. She's won 68.7% of her first serve points. She's holding about 72.4% of the time. That'd be good for sixth in the WTA stats leaderboard over that stretch of time. And again, you look at what she was so effective with over these past, you know, 15, 16 months of play, I guess now 17. It's her ability to strike the first serve play plus one tennis that, you know, 68% win percentage she has on first serve points. As I mentioned, top five on the WTA stats leaderboard. Bird, hey, great shot. Her hold percentage of 73%, that's amongst the top five. When she's holding serve, she's going to stick around with everyone. And look, 
the start to her season this year was not that great. You know, quarterfinals in Abu Dhabi got wiped out by, we'll say, a step backwards in Australia. She lost to Krejcikova in three, although that loss is certainly appreciated. She lost to Fiona Farrow in the Australian Open. And then, you know, Dubai lost to Jabour. Good, not great. I would argue Jabour has been as good as the top 15 player in the world over these past 15 months. And you had a loss to Cerebez Tormo, three sets in Miami. Again, that's a match she should win. First clay court match of the season to lose to Katie McNally. Not a great loss, but again, you look for her in this European swing. She lost to Mertens in Madrid, and now she's won four matches in straight sets, and she's heating up here at the French Open. And what does she do so well? Again, first strike tennis. And you look at the zero to four shot rallies in this match for Rabakina. She won the majority of them, 44 to 30. You look at the points extended beyond that. She played Serena even. She just had success playing first strike both on her serve and on her return points as well. And you know, Serena made 51% of her first serves, and if you're a Serena fan, the good news is that number has both been better in this event, and likely if she's going to win, will need to be and will be better, and 50 feels like that's a low-hanging fruit. She serves better. She probably sticks around a little bit longer in this match. Excuse me, in this match in total, uh, it was 57% on her first serve, which again, that's a low-hanging fruit. She won 59% of her first serve points, but only 41% of her second serve points, and again, Rabakina, who's about six feet tall, her length on that return of serve on the do side when Serena stretched her wide she was able to cut that ball off go big forehand down the line and it just felt like every backhand she touched in this match turned into a winner and in the match 21 winners against 13 unforced errors you know Serena got her racket on a bunch of the balls I actually thought Serena moved sneaky well on the clay this season um but Rabakina's ability to just hit through both wings, it felt like unless Serena was able to get that return deep at Rabakina's feet or just deep in general, Rabakina was in control of the point in her ability to go backhand cross, backhand down the line, forehand cross. She hit this one on the run, forehand cross court shot winner uh, to break for the first break, I believe, in the second set. That was just stunning. And then you know, she actually did blink, right? She was up a break 4-3 at the end of that second set. Serena gets a two-game swing for 5-4, and then Rabakina gets a three-game swing herself, sort of steadied the ship, and you look for Rabakina. She made only 59% of her first serves, but was 27 of 39 on first serve points, 14 of 27 on second serve points, and, you know, converted five of her seven break point chances. She just kept swinging from start to finish, and again, I know her 2021 stats aren't great. You look for Rabakina 20 and 15 since the tour resumed in August, but if you extend that to the start of the 2020 season, because she had such a good run to open up last year. She's 41-19 and 19 since the start of that year. Again, to have a 68% win percentage, that's what a top 20 player looks like. And currently, she's ranked number 22. You want to go by Tennis Abstract's ELO rating. She's a little bit lower than that. You go overall ELO right now. Elena Rabakina currently sitting... Uh, let's see, where is Rabakina? Uh, missing her. We'll do a quick search. Elena Rabakina. Interesting. She's number 40. That's too low. And I think, again, her numbers of late would reflect that fact in terms of 2021 ELO. Uh, you know, Rabakina all the way down to number 76 because she did struggle to start the season. But 
she has that sort of transcendent power. I ran you through the first serve numbers, and her power gave Serena all sorts of fits because, let's be honest, for Serena now, she needs to execute plus one tennis, and her plus one tennis has to be the biggest weapon on the court, and it wasn't in this matchup. Rabakina, both wings on the ground strokes, and then her serve, she just executed better than Serena did today. And again, you look at Serena's performances over the course of this slam, because the question now for Serena, it's not one slam. I don't think any of us fully expected Serena to end up winning this 2021 French Open. Certainly, I don't, I never, no one in the tennis intelligentsia, as I like to call it, made that pick, but you look for Serena, it was slow and steady progress. First round against Begu, only made 51% of her first serves, was 59-50 in terms of first serve, second serve, win percentage splits. Good, not great, but Begu didn't have the big serve to hurt her with, and Serena was so aggressive on the return. The returns landed, she wins that match in straight sets. Match number two saw the return of peak plus one Serena, and she needed it against Buznarescu because Buznarescu was able to get her stretched, but Serena executed so well on serve, made 63% of them, 75-60 service splits in terms of first serve, second serve win percentage. That's the plus one tennis Serena needed, and then against Danielle Collins, that plus one manifested itself in the ample, you know, ample amount. She won 80% of her first serve points, and you know, held Collins to 11 of 32 on Collins' second serve points, which is what Serena has to do now. She needs to be an aggressive returner. She needs to play big first strike, and, you know, that was particularly important in her matchup today against Rabakina because if you left anything in the center, that match, or it became a rally on Rabakina's racket. And again, her ability to absorb Serena's backhand today was particularly impressive. And then Let's be honest, she overwhelmed Serena with pace to that forehand wing. It was really, really impressive. But, you know, Serena hit the top gear in the Collins match, at least on her first serve. And that top gear is only going to be amplified by the switch in surface from the French Open and the clay to Wimbledon and the grass courts. And again, her first serve percentage for this tournament was like 55%. That number needs to be better for this iteration of Serena Williams to win a Grand Slam. But when the first serve was landing, when the plus one opportunities arose, she looked as good as ever. And, you know, in some of her breaks, one of the breaks she gave back to Rabakina today, she had, you know, a 30-all approach shot on her racket. She overcooked it long. She would get, she gets to game point there. She holds. It's now, you know, 4-3 her instead of 3-4 down, or excuse me, 3-all uh, instead of 4-2 down a break. And it just felt like she was constantly facing scoreboard pressure from Rabakina, and it was a credit to Rabakina, who again stayed on her front foot to earn this victory. But you look for Serena, it's very similar to the Roger Federer case. I think she got out of this French Open what she needed, which is, hey, there's some low-hanging fruit, first serve percentage, clean up the returns a little bit, particularly the first serve return. But there are also, the strength is still there, and that strength, again, only going to be better magnified uh, by the switching of surfaces. So, Good, uh, again, I think the story in this match was Rabakina, who just out-hit Serena, and to do that, to take a match off Serena Williams' racket, you are now on the list for Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club. I've said it before, you know, she's definitely caddying on weekends to still learn the secrets. I need a semifinal from a slam, maybe even a final, obviously a title if you want to be a property owner. 
Uh, but Rabakina is in the conversation now. She's put herself on the short list. You know, it's very Sabalenka-ish in terms of its way. Or it's not Sabalenka-ish because I think Sabalenka can do a little bit more uh, in terms of more dynamic. It's a little Kvitova-y. I'd say that's the way of describing it, who uses her length and, you know, again, her power to just overwhelm players from any position of the court if she has the time to do it. And I think Rabakina is a little bit more fluid as well. To call her a more fluid Kvitova, that's not fair because Kvitova's top gear is still more impressive. But that is a little bit of the feeling of Rabakina. I'd say the comparison of Rabakina to uh, Kvitova is like the comparison of Korda to Burdich. Let me know what you all think of that comparison at Great Shot Pod. I actually feel pretty good about that one. But again, for Serena, glass half full take. She got what she needed out of this tournament. I still think if the question is can she win Wimbledon, the answer is not a definitive no, which at this point of her career has to be a victory. Uh, and 24 is very much still on the table, but Elena Rabakina now... I mean, the bottom half of the draw is wide open, and with that in mind, let's get into the Bedosa Shaber von Drusova match. This one felt like a proxy for, hey, whoever wins this is now the favorite for the final, and it played out as such, as it was a three-set win in the end for Bedosa over von Drusova. You look overall in the match, 6-4, 3-6-6-2. I mean, Bedosa just makes a high percentage of first serves, and it's not the biggest weapons, but, uh, weapon, but it's the constant pressure she puts you under. 67% in this match won 69% of her first serve points, you know, fought off six of the nine breakpoint chances she faced. Um, that was good enough in this match. And, you know, again, the second serve does hang up a little bit short, and she doesn't have the most overwhelming weapons, but she can track down everything you throw at her. And you guys know I love my lists. I love my tiers. I've brought up this stat before. I think if you're a top 15 player in both hold and break percentage, you're of the elite of the elite, and the numbers bear that out on the women's side. Only three players are in the top 15 of both hold and break percentage. Those players are Sviantek, who's the favorite to win this Grand Slam, Sabalenka, who's won everything but the Grand Slam she's played this year, and then Muguruza, who was so dominant to start the season. You extend that list to the top 20, though. It's Sabalenka, Muguruza, Sriantek, then Mertens, who was the wins leader last year, Jabour, who we'll talk about in a little bit in our preview, and then Paula Badosa, Jabeur, who you look over the last 52 weeks. She's 31-12. and 12. In her last 52 weeks of play, and, you know, it's been two three-set matches for her in her last two, but she just presents a lot of different problems. And, you know, in terms of, again, that uh, 2021 ELO rating uh, on the women's side, you look for Paula Bedosa. She is, I believe, right now number seven in terms of yearly eight ELO. You want to go clay court specific. She's number nine. She's playing like a top 10 player, and I think the numbers manifest that self. You look for her, she is you know, winning 45.6% of her return points. I mentioned it, that's a top 20 number, and she's winning 68% of her first serve points. That's a top 20 number. She's doing everything well. She absorbs what you throw at her, and you know, Von Drusseva threw a ton of variety, the different drop shots, the short angles, the moon balls. If you give Bedosa time to sit on the forehand, she can hit through it as well. And she had the opportunities to do that in this match. You look at the breakdown in terms of rally length. It's funny because when Von Drusova was able to get Bedosa's stretch, she did do a good job of mixing in drop shots, short angle, first ball approach, all the different things that make her successful. So it's not a surprise if you watch this match to hear that Von Drusova won was plus four in the zero to four shot rallies. But anything that went longer than that, was Bedosa territory. She was plus, I believe, 13 on the day in those five-plus shot rallies, and that's just, again, physically. She presents such a tough out. She grinds you down, and then there is a little bit, you know, 
it's Muguruza lightish in that it's very well rounded. She can throw a little bit of everything at you. Now again, her net points today, nine of sixteen, wasn't great, and she does open up space for herself. But I also think that's a testament to Von Drusova so dangerous when she's in the outer thirds of the court. But you know, she did a great job of just keeping every Von Drusova, you know, keeping her under pressure, not allowing her to maximize those plus one opportunities. Converted five of her ten breakpoint chances, thirty winners against thirty unforced errors. Von Drusova just didn't have a big enough weapon, and her variety didn't impact because Bedosa moved so well in the outer thirds of the court. Didn't hurt her enough to hit Bedosa off the court. And if you don't have a weapon to hurt Bedosa right now, you're just not going to beat her. And what's interesting going into that round of sixteen match on the win, uh, excuse me, that quarterfinal match now, because you look for. Bedosa, she's a heavy favorite, certainly against Zidancic, but the Zidancic forehand's the biggest weapon on the court, and Zidancic today, 7-6-6-1 victory over Kursea, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit, I suppose. Zidancic's got all the confidence in the world, and how much does Bedosa have left in the tank? Now, she does have a day off. I do think she'll be fine and bounce back well, but, you know, again, injuries, withdrawals have been the story, and 31-12 and 12 is a lot of tennis for Bedosa in the last 52 weeks. Nevertheless, I mean, look, talk about her win streak. She won Belgrade coming into this event. Uh, she's now won four in a row here. She's won nine straight clay court matches. I don't see her stopping now. She is the fi- favorite on paper. On the bottom half, she's the odds maker's favorite as well. Now, I feel like if everyone plays their best tennis, Elena Rabakina emerges into the Grand Slam final because, again, she does have the ability of all the names in the bottom half to play on her terms, but who's playing the best right now, who can afford to have an off day and still win the match. The biggest margin of error belongs to Paula Bedosa, who earns the three-set win over Van Drusseva. And again, for Van Drusseva to get to the round of 16, given she didn't have the best clay court season, this was a steadying of the ship for her. She's going to be in second weeks in the French Open for a lot of her career. Uh, This was a really fun match, a match she absolutely could have won. But in the end, Bedosa advances in three over Von Drusseva, and that now leads us to the men's side. I do want to talk a little bit about Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who I've said it before. He's everything we want Tommy Paul to be, a little bit more power on his shots from the baseline, a little bit you know, more flair and aggression to him than Tommy, but just elite athletes who can do a little bit of everything on the court, and you look for Davidovich Fokina now. He's played 14 sets in his last three matches. Today, it was a 6-4-6-4-4-6-6-4 victory over Federico Delbanis. And look, 42 winners against 47 unforced errors doesn't sound great, but when you compare it to the 28 winners to 42 unforced errors of Delbanis, you realize that it was just a matter of, you know, when, not if the Davidovich Fokina would be the one to pull the trigger, go down the line, move forward to the net, and be the aggressor in this match. And, you know, he came up with a bunch of passing shots as well because a credit to Delbanis as this match went on. He realized, okay, I can't just settle in these baseline rallies because I'm losing them, so I need to move forward more. And he went 21 of 40 at the net, and that's a testament, A, to him not being the most comfortable up there, but B, Davidovich Fokina's athleticism, his fluidity on the clay, beat him to the spot, and he just moved better than him. And then, you know, again, when he had the opportunity to play plus one tennis, made 65% of his first serves, won 70% of those points. You look at the zero to four shot rallies, it was, you know, for Delbonis, he needed to hit that big first forehand, but for Davidovich Fokina, he won 51 of the, so he's minus 13 there, but, you know, 
plus, let's do 12, 11, that's 23, minus 13. So he's plus 10 overall in the match, and, you know, again, plus 23 in the five-plus shot rallies. The longer, the more physical the match went, it's crazy to say, but it leaned toward uh, the 22-year-old, excuse me, 20, yeah, two-year-old now officially. Oh, happy belated birthday to Vidovich Okino, which is on June 5th. Uh, to him, and again, another big number. I've mentioned these leaps that we're seeing in front of our faces. Rabakina's won 68% of her matches. Bedosa Jaber, 68% of her matches. Davidovich Fokina, 38-19 since the tour resumed in August. That's 67% of his matches. I mean, he's just be- becoming more effective across the board. And, you know, his break percentage is now up into the 30%. To, uh, 30%. He's at 31.1. That's good for fourth right now amongst the top 50 players on the ATP stats leaderboard. He just puts a bunch of returns in play, and then once the point's at neutral... He's got the athleticism always to take control of it. And again, he's dynamic off of both wings. He doesn't have dramatic backswings, so you feel like it's a game that's going to transcend surface as well. And then there's just a flair to him, an aggression, a willingness to move forward, a willingness to be ballsy and go down the line on that passing shot if he thinks he can beat you to the spot and mix in the drop shot as well and absorb your best blow and dish it right back at you. Uh, He was really, really good today. And again, in terms of... The total numbers for him, you look uh, in today's matches, it, it, the 49% on the second serve, that second serve absolutely does hang short, but he converted 7 of his 16 breakpoint chances, fought off 7 of the 12 he faced, he jumped on the Del Bonis second serve as well, and just for a guy who has now played 14 sets in his last 3 matches, you know, 5 sets against a big hitting uh, opponent in Botic Van Desen, Sculp, Casper Rue. That was a physical five-set match. He wins 7-5 in the third. Now, another physical four-set win against Del Bonus, excuse me. And, you know, this was a match that in the end goes for three hours of tennis. He is clearly a dramatic underdog against Alex Virev in the quarterfinal round, but he's into his first quarterfinal, and when you look at his results from this clay court season, quarterfinals of Monte Carlo, semifinals of Esterol, round of 16 coming through qualifying at Rome, he belongs in this portion of the event. You look at him on clay in his last 52, you know, 20 and 8 overall. He made the, you know, come, came through qualifying Rome last year and pushed Rublev uh, in a four-set match at Roland Garros, and, you know, again, all of the results this year, he's gotten wins over Berrettini, over Umber, over Nori, over Rude. He's earned his way in this quarterfinal path. Again, number four right now in break percentage on Tennis Abstract's top 50 leaderboard. Just a well-rounded skill set, a guy who I think is going to be in the top 30. I don't know how high his ceiling is, but I know his floor is immensely high, and it's a very physical game, so it'll be fascinating to see how his body holds up. But right now, I mean, he's in the prime of his youth, baby. You can roll an ankle and feel fine the next day. Davidovich Fokina, the 22-year-old, rocking and rolling into his first Grand Slam quarterfinal. Four-set win for him. Favorable draw, certainly against Del Bonis, but he did the hard work in the third round, knocking out Kasper Rude. A spot he deserves to be in, certainly, heading into uh, the second week of play. And then, you know, it's an all-next-gen bottom half, and I'm going to break down kind of all of the matches now. Uh, Let's start with the men's side since we're there. 
Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, your other round of 16 uh, winners on the day here on the men's side to advance to the quarterfinals. And now we get Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and certainly that match on clay, we are all excited to see what it looks like, you'd feel like, with the dynamicism of Tsitsipas's forehand, just again, his ability to play attacking tennis, the way his ball cuts through the court, the way a clay court neutralizes a big serve to give him more time to hit through the backhand. He would be more of a favorite against Medvedev on this surface than maybe any of the others. Grass is the interesting one because Tsitsipas, the shot maker, but Medvedev, the length and the serve. Hopefully we get him on all of the surfaces. Anyways, for Daniil Medvedev today, he was silly good against Christian Guerin, 6-2, 6-1, and his comeback to take that third set is a testament to him separating himself. That's the sort of win a Djokovic gets a Federer and a Nadal and a Murray in their primes where it's just like, oh, that's cute. You think you're going to extend this match an extra set? No, I'm ready to get off the court now. That's exactly what Daniil Medvedev did, and just by every metric, he beat Garen. Now, only made 56% of his first serves, and that number is going to have to improve if he wants to beat Tsitsipas and honestly beat Zverev, get to the final. Um, but he won 86% of his first serves, 53% of his second serve points, only faced two break points on the day, and obviously was broken once by Garen, but just the once... And he was lights out across the board. 46 winners against 32 unforced errors. He baited Garen into 29 unforced errors against only 11 winners. I mean, he won the plus, he won the zero to four shot rallies. And even in the third set, he won them by two. And just overall in the match, look, he was plus 19 on the zero to fours and, you know, plus, uh, plus 11 on the five plus shot rallies. And, it was just target practice for him in this match. And, you know, for Christian Guerin, hits such a dynamic forehand and on clay courts is unbelievable at finding that forehand. Didn't matter against Medvedev because he just kept going cross court to the backhand, cross court to the backhand, cross court to the backhand. And eventually Guerin would get, Im- or Guerin would get impatient and either try to go down the line and would hit an error, try and go too short of an angle and miss in the net, or just go down the line and leave the wide open cross court forehand for Medvedev to hit. And he hit it routinely. And then Guerin would start to cheat over, expecting Medvedev to go cross court, and he'd cross him. And he'd go back down the line to that Guerin backhand, and we're back in the backhand patterns until Guerin leaves one in the center of the court, and Medvedev goes big backhand down the line. I mean, he found the down the lines off both wings. He neutralized the Guerin serve. Guerin made 64% of his first serves, but won uh, just 51% of his returning points, 47 of the 92, so literally 51% by one point. Um, Medvedev just beat him in every facet of the game. And again, I think it's both a three out of five set thing, and it speaks to just the nature of Daniil Medvedev. We've talked about it before on this podcast. He's your definition of a modern player. He can do a little bit of everything. Big first serve and puts a ton of returns in play. Moves extraordinarily well. Has the six foot six length. Can pop a backhand down the line. Slap through a forehand if needed. Has the gumption to move forward. Play drop shot. Hit lobs. Hit short angles can just do a little bit of everything. He probably has, again, of the ne- of the non-Djokovic-Nadal categories, the highest floor of any of the players currently on tour because when things go wrong, and we've seen them go wrong for him, he can scrap his way out of it, particularly in three out of five set matches. Now, what we haven't seen a lot of until in this match is what him clicking on clay looks like. And it looks a lot of like this, where his just accuracy, his, uh, his length, and his movement allow him to just break down and take away whatever his opponent wants to do. And again, in this match, it was Green's attempts to hit forehands. Medvedev took those opportunities away, executed on the first serves, played plus one tennis when the 
opportunity presented itself. Even moved forward to the net efficiently, 7 of 12. Not that he needed too much because, again, he was just in that sort of control. He was just better than Green, who I do think fourth round of the French Open, that's a notch under the belt. It's a stage we should get accustomed to seeing him at because that backhand's only going to get better and better, and that forehand on clay is elite. The way it rips through the court, his serve gets better, his movement gets better, the low center of gravity. He was built for clay court tennis, and certainly, again, he ran into a buzzsaw, but this is a match if he wants to win a Grand Slam, and again, it's probably, if it's ever going to happen for Christian Garin, be at the French Open. He's just got to find a way to hurt a guy like Daniil Medvedev, do a little bit more with that backhand, or just say, all right, fine, let's go backhands cross court, and I'm going to be so physically fit, I can beat you in 45, 50 ball rallies. Uh, But today, Medvedev was too good. He advances to the quarterfinals, where now he's going to match up against Stefano Tsitsipas, who... Look, did exactly what Medvedev did. I talk about separating themselves and joining that Federer, Nadal, Djokovic tier where they just beat who they should beat. Karino Busta was up in early break, three love in that second set, uh, in that third set, excuse me. And Tsitsipas got it back, ends up burning a 6-3-6-2-7-5 victory, was on his front foot for the duration of this match. And it was crazy because Karino Busta just didn't have a big enough weapon to hurt him with and you look for Tsitsipas on the day, fought off five of the six break points he faced, and, you know, won more than 50% of his second serve return points, won over 75% of his first serve points, was 21 of 29 at the net, 41 winners against only 17 unforced errors. Even if that's a generous unforced error count, Tsitsipas just physically has hit another stage where unless you have a big weapon to break down his backhand with, whether that's, you know, a Federer attacking, whether it's the heavy topspin of Nadal, whether it's Zverev's serve when he's clicking on those right days or just the overall pace of a Yannick Sinner, it's going to be really, really hard. Hercots, the big serve, the flatness of his strokes, it's going to be really, really hard to beat Tsitsipas moving forward because he just has found a way, particularly on clay when he has time to swing through that backhand. We've talked about it before, his break percentage raised by 10% at the ATP level when returning on hard courts versus clay courts. He goes from like 18%, which is atrocious, to 28%, which is top 10, top 15 good. Uh, by the way, the list of men's players who are top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Medvedev, Rublev, Nadal, Djokovic, Zverev, and Karatsev. You extend that to the top 25, Sinner and Tsitsipas, both included on that list. That does feel like the eight players who have mattered the most over the last 52 weeks, but Tsitsipas belongs on that list, particularly when you're on clay courts. He becomes top 10 in both categories. He is rounding into form. Again, we'll talk about that match. It's a Patreon match of the day that all of you can hear by becoming Patreon subscribers on Monday, but we'll talk about it more in our preview pod. That's the match, folks, we've all been waiting for at any stage in any event. And we get it in the quarterfinal of a Grand Slam with the winner likely to be the favorite to advance to the final over an inform Alex Virov. And again, hate him personally. You can understand why. Tennis-wise, it's clicked for him at these Grand Slams. Six consecutive now. He's made the fourth round or later, and after dropping the opening sets to Oscar Ota, he hasn't dropped a set since, dominated a physically, you know, wary Kei Nishikori, but still 6-4, 6-1, 6-1. The serve was landing. You know, again, unless you've got a massive weapon he, on these clay courts, he moves so well in his ability to absorb, redirect, so impressive. He can play plus one when the first serve's landing as well. We all know what a good Alex Vera performance looks like. The question is, does he have the gumption to do it at a later stage? Can he execute well enough on the first serve, not feel the pressure, get tights, let the double faults in the 67-mile-per-hour second serve shake in? I mean, 
Again, his opponent in the quarterfinals, Davidovich Fokina, he beat twice last year, indoor hard courts, but still. And, you know, his opponents played 14 sets in the last five days, uh, six days at the time of the match. Yeah, Zverev can absolutely, is the prohibitive favorite to reach the semifinals, and he'll have had a much lighter path than either Tsitsipas or Medvedev. But at that point, it's a highlight match. It's a center stage match, bright lights. Can he execute well enough in the big moments? Again, I've said this case before. I'll kind of break it down where I'm at in terms of the bottom half. I think it's a three-pronged race. I think physically, the guy best suited to beat Rafael Nadal is Alex Zverev. When you're drawing the perfect player to beat Nadal in clay, he's six foot six, righty who hits through the two-hand and backhand as well as anyone, isn't going to be overwhelmed by the pace and the topspin of Nadal's ball, or at least won't be as overwhelmed as the normal player because of his size, because of his proficiency off both wings, but then also has a first serve to win easy points against Nadal with and play a little plus one action when it comes through and again physically able to stand the test of best of five Alex Zverev on paper checks off all of those bound, uh, boxes. We've also seen him beat Nadal, albeit, again, not three out of five, but we've seen him beat him on clay, so at least we know the possibility of Zverev winning a set against Nadal on clay is something that's been achieved. I think on paper, he's the best argument. Again, who's the person I would least want to face? Daniil Medvedev, because good luck beating him three out of five sets. Physically, he just doesn't go away, makes a million balls, but then also has a first serve like John Isner and puts, you know, returns in the court like Prime Djokovic. It's just a nightmare. Like, I, what's the game plan when you play Medvedev? Oh, hit to his forehand wing. Really? Like, are we sure? Because he's just going to lullygag me to death and go down the line and open the backhand. And then when I'm running to my backhand wing, he's just hitting open court with his backhand or hitting behind me. It's like, do I really want to hit to his forehand? Like, probably. But again, a lot easier said than done. Then the guy who's got the gumption to do it is Tsitsipas, just because he is in form. It feels like he plays matches on his terms regardless of what happens. As good as Zverev and Medvedev are, it's taking away what you want to do best. He's the guy who plays on his front foot, hits through his forehand, comes to the net, goes big on the return, has the big weapon for the first serve always, and win or lose, it doesn't matter. He plays Tsitsipas tennis. He's also hit another level physically. I mean, all three of them are ready for the test. And, I'm, of course, knowing us, it's going to be Davidovich Fokina in the end. But that we're going to get one of them to face either likely Nadal or Djokovic in the final. It's time for that matchup at every slam, and we're going to get it finally. They're all... There's an argument to make for all three. Again, Tsitsipas on gumption, Zverev on paper, probably Medvedev in reality. That's where I stand on the men's results heading into the bottom half quarterfinals. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. 
To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. On the women's side, I mean, pick them. Pick a name out of a hat. Iga versus who? Your guess is as good as mine. You look at this bottom half of the draw, it's truly anyone's to lose. And as I mentioned, Zidancic, 7-6-6-1 over Kirstea. She hasn't dropped a set since that Andrescu match, and the draw has certainly opened up for her. But her forehand's a bigger weapon than anything Bedosa Jaber's got. And Bedosa's played a lot of physical tennis, two three-set matches in her last uh, two rounds. And, you know, again, she played a bunch of events in the warm-up. And certainly, you know, you could understand the pressure of the stage quarterfinals at all sort of getting to her in that moment. But at the same time, like, I'm not going to bet against Paula Bedosa because fitness is one of her calling cards. And, like, she, her, she's going to be able to absorb, like, there's a dancing forehand, it's not that big. She's going to be able to absorb that. And so it's a fascinating matchup. And then... Look, Pavlchenkova took it to V. I mean, it was a great result for her against Vika. 5-7-6-3-6-2 victory. And you look overall for Pavlchenkova, you know, what she did well in this match. Made 71% of her first serves and won 63% of those points. And yeah, she was 9 of 28 on second serve points. But Vika was 10 of 32. They were both under 35%. And this was very much first strike tennis. And Pavlchenkova was just better today. It was punishing Vika's second serves and just 45 winners against 27 unforced errors Vika's versus Vika's 31 to 30. She was the one more frequently getting Vika into the outer third of the court. And most importantly, she just kept swinging and swinging and swinging and ultimately now finds herself in a French Open quarterfinal. And she's the veteran at, what, 29 years old in this section now. You know, I think Rabakina is even hitting the ball bigger right now than Victoria Azarenka, and I do think she's got the length, and she's moving confidently, too. And the question is, you beat Serena, is there a letdown result? Pavlchenkova is playing with house money right now, and you can tell how freely she's swinging at this point. But she also just got a huge win over Vika, so that's an interesting match. Again, this whole bottom half of the draw, I know I just did a full breakdown on the men's side. I don't know what you want me to say on the women's side. None of them have advanced to a slam final. Eileen, Bedosa's the surest bet. It's on Rabakina's racket, though. She's got the highest upside. I picked Rabakina on no challenges remaining. Knowing me, I could hedge here and say Bedosa. I'm saying Rabakina. Screw it. Her power tennis, it looked that good against Serena. I just feel like if Bedosa gets through Zidanezic, it's good. that's got to be a straight set win. And am I really going to count on Pavlochenkova? I mean, I just made the case for instance. I've made the case for all four. Give me Rabakina. Her power tennis in the end is the most elite. It's the elite skill left on this bottom half of the draw. But that's a really fun bottom half. And then the top half of the women's draw is as good as it gets. And those are your round of 16 matches tomorrow. I mean, we get Jabour Goff part four. It's the fourth time these two have played in the last 52 weeks. Very similar records. Uh, 34 and 15 for Goff. She's clearly made a jump. She's a top 10 player by Tennis Abstract's ELO rating. She's won 69% of her matches in the last 52 weeks. Own Jabour, by the way, matches that. 35 and 15. She's won 70% of her matches. And again, to the crowd that says, oh, nothing but the slams matter. Badosa, Jabour, Goff, Davidovich, Fokina, 
all of these players made CT Pass even to an extent with how well he's been playing. I mean, Sinner, all of these guys that you see, Alcaraz, Musetti making breakthroughs are all players that are making breakthroughs week in, week out, and the slams are just the first stage for them to do it at the national and, I suppose, global level for the sport. Uh, but they've all, all the breadcrumbs have been there, if you've been looking closely. And I like to think if you've been listening to this mini-break podcast, you've been listening closely. Anyways, 35-15 and 15 for Jabour, 34-15 and 15 for Coco Goff. Jabour, one, uh, excuse me, Goff 2-1 and one in their three matchups. Uh, Goff, a three-set win in Lexington last year and then a win in Rome 4-3. and three. Jabour got Goff in Charleston this year in the quarterfinals, a 3-3 three and three result. I mean, look, these are two players that can do a lot of different things. And the Coco Goff serves probably the biggest weapon on the court, but Jabour puts a ton of returns in play. She's crafty as hell. She's going to throw slices at Goff and you know, go inside in with the forehand, move forward to the net, put Goff on her back foot, but Coco Goff can play. And Coco Goff's only going to get better and better in her movement, and her movement's already borderline elite, and just she looks comfortable in the outer thirds, and she's well-rested coming into this match. She served particularly well, and when she plays plus one now, it looks not quite dominant, but it looks very, very good. And again, she can just hurt you in so many different ways. And she is the sort of athlete, this is why I think she's 2-1 against Jabour, that can handle the the funky spins and the short angles and all the different, you know, Jabour doesn't like to hit the ball in the same location more than twice in a row. And so Goff's got the footwork and, again, the movements, the footwork and movement are very similar. But she's able to do both well enough that she's going to be able to withstand what Jabour throws at her at the same time. You know, this is a round of 16 stage for Coco Goff, and she's a borderline favorite, certainly by seed. She's the 24, Jabour's the 25, but she's a favorite in this stage. And you look at that top half of the draws, things certainly open up for her. She plays, you know, it's her, Jabour, Stevens, and Krejcikova. One of those four names is ending up in these French Open semifinals. This is an immense opportunity for Goff. Again, the first serve percentage is the number for Goff. If she's able to hit over 60%, I think she puts enough pressure on Jabour by taking big cuts at the second serve return and withstanding the first strike funk that Jabour throws at her. I think this match is on her racket, and given her form of late, I'm going to take her to win this match. Give me Goff over Jabour. Stevens versus Krejcikova is fascinating as well because you look for Barbara Krejcikova. She's been sneaky good this season, folks. Number 15 overall in terms of 2021 ELO, of course. I believe it was the run in the final she had. I believe that was Dubai where she lost to Muguruza in the end. That's a big result for her. She also won Strasbourg the week heading into this match. You know, she's gotten wins over Alexandrova and Svitolina in this uh, French Open already. She's only dropped one set, and that was actually in her first round match to Pliskova, she's faced all the tests that she's had in front of her, but legitimately, despite all those names, Alexandrova, Svitolina, the biggest name she'll face and the best player she'll face thus far will be Sloane Stevens, who has been just excellent as this tournament has progressed. She looked so incredible against Karolina Mukova. Her ability, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, to just hit that forehand authoritatively, inside out, inside in, cross court. She's moving fluidly out of both corners. She's hitting the first serve at a high percentage as well, win those first serve points at a high percentage. This is just going to be a good match because Krejcikova's got that big forehand backswing, likes to take big cuts at that ball, be the aggressor, but Sloan's got enough pace that if she can get that return deep into the body of Krejcikova, she'll be able to dictate a little bit. Again, this matchup reminds me a lot of the matchup on the bottom half of the draw we're about to get in Bedosa versus Danzik. 
I lean Bedosa in that one. I lean Stevens in this one, but that's an exciting match. And then we get, by the way, to our bottom half, which is just stupid. Sockery versus Kennan. I mean, if anyone's got the fitness to hang, handle the variety of Sonia Kennan, it's Maria Sakari. Her movement in the corners and out of and hitting out of those corners is going to be so crucial. And she's got to make a big percentage of first serves because I don't know if anyone can withstand three hours of Kennan moving you corner to corner to corner to corner. But if anyone can do it, it's Maria Sakari. And I mentioned that group of women, top 20 players. If you extend it to top 25, Sakari ends up joining the list. Uh, and she has been one of the relevant players in women's tennis, the most relevant, I should say. I'd say one of the 10 as well in the past 52 weeks. I'm going to take her over Kennan. That will be my upset on the day. Kennan just played two physical matches in Ostapenko and Pagula. Sakari just played a physical one against Mertens, but that's what Sakari does. Give me her to advance to the quarterfinals. And then Kostyuk Sviantek, they're friends, they've played in juniors, Kostyuk's got the firepower to at least force Sviantek to be on the defensive, not play freely on her terms, but I'm not picking against Iga, no one's picking against Iga, that said, Kostyuk can do it, because she is fearless, and she's going to go down swing, and the thing about Sviantek that's so dangerous is she is so good in the outer thirds of the court, like, her movement might be the underrated skill, but it might be her best skill on clay, her fluidity in the outer thirds, her ability, I mentioned on the past podcast, she hits the banana hook forehand passing shot, you know, the outside the alley, it hooks back in, about as well as anyone you know, not named Rafael Nadal, and she might even be in that category. It's so impressive when she does, and she's got the extreme grip that it's pronounced as well in the trajectory. And she's going to be hitting a lot in the corner. She's going to be on the run. But again, if she executes a high percentage of first serve, it will draw errors from Kostyuk, who takes big cuts. That said, when Kostyuk lands the big cuts, she's on her front foot. And she's going to have the opportunity. She's got the weapons to at least play front foot tennis, which is what you need to do. That said, if Conteve can't win a first set against Sviantek, hitting 23 winners against 11 unforced errors, I don't know if anyone can. Give me Iga to advance, but things get tough for Iga, man. I mean, the, the, the easiest match Iga has left will be whoever she faces in the finals, if she gets to that point, because Kenan Sakari winner, and then one of that Jabor Goff, Stevens Krejcikova quartet with how well they're all playing if, if there's a line of thinking that goes Iga didn't earn it as it wasn't as tough of a draw not that she didn't earn it but that the Kennan in the final was so banged down physically and worn down physically and you know Halep straight set was such a shocking result that you know the rest of the wins was it a little fluky I, I, no one thinks that anymore by the way no the fact that she's established herself as a favorite is a testament that no one thinks that but if she earns this French Open title She's a two-time slam champion, no asterisks, no nothing, and she's the favorite to win every French Open of the 2020s, which is just scary to think considering she just turned 20 years old. But again, those are just your women's matches on the day, folks. That's the sort of fun we have. I lost track there because to think on the men's side, you know, Berrettini gets the withdrawal from Federer. We talked about that on the, on the Day 7 recap, so if you want to hear my thoughts, go check that out. Nadal Sinner, I mean, mwah. Nadal 2-0 against Yannick Sinner in his career. But interesting to note for the Sin Man, a 40-17 and 17 in his last 52. That's that 70% win percentage number that shows a player making a leap into the top 20. But what that also shows is just, you know, it's really interesting for me. He's 4-9 and nine against top 10 opponents. Wins over Rublev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and Goffin. It's pretty impressive. And I mean, you look from two losses to Nadal, obviously last year, 6-4-1 and one in the quarterfinals. He lost to him in Rome, 5-4 and four as well. But look, Nadal served good, not great. 
And if he hangs his second serve, Sinner's going to go after it. And Sinner's got firepower off both wings. Forehand, backhand, it doesn't matter. He does have that ability to at least be decisive enough and try and swing through, put some pressure on Rafa. Now look, no one's betting against Rafa in this match. But if it's going to be an upset, this is the one on the day. Like This is the one you circle where it fits the narrative. The Sin Man just swings through Rafa and swings through all of his problems and finds himself in the quarterfinals, and it's a, is this the changing of the guard? I've said it before, I need to see Rafa lose two years in a row before I'm even willing to consider that. But Sinner's at least got the firepower to do it. Now, he's going to have to make 65% of his first serves, and he's going to have to take some chances, go for some plus ones, and pray they land. He's going to have to win the 0-4 to shot rallies, which is really hard to do when Rafa hits a first forehand, you lose the point on clay. Um, But... You know, he's going to have to execute, find the Rafa backhand. When Rafa takes his backhand down the lines, I think Sinner's in a particularly advantageous position to swing through that ball cross court. And sometimes that ball gets a little bit risky when you can jam that side with pace, but that's not what Rafa jams you with. He jams you with the heaviness of his ball. And I think when Sinner can just swing through and doesn't have to generate his own topspin, that's when he's most dangerous. And so I'm really interested in this matchup. Sinner's got the weapons. A, does he have the physicality to hold up five sets? B, can he execute well enough? I don't know if the answer is yes to either of those questions. That's why I lean Rafa, who you don't need me to tell you what he does well on clay, but that's at least the case for Sinner, and that's certainly going to be a fantastic match. Djokovic Musetti is fun on paper, but like, you know who wants you to drop shot him and make matches the outer thirds and a show of improvisation? Novak freaking Djokovic. I just think he's perfectly suited to beat Musetti. Musetti's got the gumption. He's going to go down swinging, but I think Novak wins that match in straights. And then Schwartzman Struff. I mean, Struff's the toughest opponent Schwartzman faced by a not particularly small margin in this event, and we haven't seen Schwartzman tested, but it's a testament to him that he's cruised through after struggling all clay court season. The Struff man's got the ball in his racket, and there's going to be one upset tomorrow, right? And that's the one probably everyone circles. I'm going to take Schwartzman at this point. Again, just three out of five sets. Can Struff keep the magic going? Can he be that disciplined for that long? I say the answer is no, but if he makes a high percentage of his first serves, anything can happen. Those are your day nine men's matches. Rafa versus Sinner, Djokovic versus Musetti, Schwartzman versus Struff. And that's your day eight recap, day nine preview here on the Mini Break Podcast. Now, I will be joined by guests the rest of the way, so you won't have to deal with my 45-minute monologues. But if you have missed any of the action thus far, you want to hear from the guests we've had, Jamie McDonald, Gil Gross, Jeff Sackman. You can find all of our French Open coverage on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You can find our final podcast of the 2021 College Tennis Season, our update with Tennis Point, Dave Limke on the Cracked Interview Show. And of course, as always, I will ask that you write, like, rate, subscribe, review to each of our podcasts. But if you need the more immediate updates throughout the day, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an ending job they do day in, day out. A shout out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Go to tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. But with that in mind, for super producers Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, excuse me, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. 